910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. Today, we're going to finish our series, Dysfunctional Children, Functional God, by taking a look at the father in the parable. And as we said before, this parable is about two lost sons. The first one, who, as we said in part two of the series, has no interest in a relationship with his father, and he wishes his father would go away or, in effect, basically die and just give him what he thinks he's entitled to so that he can live the life that he wants. We have to understand that when Jesus told this parable, the people who were originally hearing him would have been shocked because they lived in a culture where fathers were highly respected and regarded. So as we said before, for the younger son to go and ask his father for his inheritance was in effect saying, Father, I wish you were dead so that I could go get my material resources that are going to come to me when you finally are dead. Yeah. And that would have definitely been shocking to the people who were listening to Jesus. But the message is going to become even more shocking. You know, (laughs) Jesus used the brick upon, upon the head because sometimes we need a brick upside the head to finally get what somebody's saying to us. And that's what the Pharisees are going to get here. That's what is probably going to feel like to the Pharisees that are listening. So when a smack upside the head doesn't work, we go with the brick? Yep. (laughs) Sometimes you need a brick. That's true. I know I do. So the younger son obviously has a bad reputation. It's likely that all the people listening are waiting for Jesus to say, this is why you should honor your father and mother. You shouldn't squander your wealth. You should stay away from unclean people and sentiments like that. They were probably waiting to see what the father would do when he hears that the son's returning. Oh, yeah. And they're going to get something they don't expect. You know, how would we react to our son or daughter who treated us that way? Would we be watching for them to come home, just waiting to say, I knew you'd come groveling back? Or when we saw them coming down the driveway, would we stand on the front porch with our arms crossed, tapping our toes with a smirk on our faces? How would we react? That's a good question. Something to think about. We're saying that to try and help you put the mindset of the Pharisees in your head. This parable is not designed to teach fathers and mothers what to do and what not to do with your rebellious kids. It's designed to tell us how God relates to us in our rebellion. This is a picture of how God relates to us, not how we should parent our children. So, Chris, let's read the parable one more time before we dive in. Okay. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So most of us have probably stood and watched someone walking away from us either to go on a long trip, maybe their first airplane trip, and maybe we've watched our college freshmen walk away once the car's unpacked and it's time for us to take that long drive home back to our empty nester house. Or maybe we've watched one or more of our children walk away to go to basic training. Chris, you and I have done that, knowing that we're not going to get any more than a phone call saying they've arrived safely and we have no idea when we're going to hear from them again. That's exactly right. We both have done that. And it's tough. And the father in the parable who represents God the father saw the younger son walk away. Human parents may not know if a child's coming back, but God knows everything. We are never out of his sight. He's omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere all the time. And he's omniscient, knowing all things. So nothing catches God off guard. Nothing we do is a surprise to him. And in the parable, when the son realizes where he's at in life, in the parable, Luke 15, 20 tells us when he comes back, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And verse 20 goes on to say, he felt compassion and embraced him and kissed him. In that culture, it was not considered dignified for an older man to run. You think about this. The father would have had to lift up his long robe to run, and that was not thought to be a dignified thing for an older man to do. So here's this father who's been highly offended by his son, sprinting towards him in compassion and love to receive him home. In an undignified manner. That's right. So, That's right. You know, and the son repents of his sin. This is one of the main points Jesus is making in this parable. Sinners need to repent. And this son who has come to the end of his rope does that. He's realized that he's utterly destitute and he knows he needs to repent. In fact, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he's thinking that this father will hire him back as a worker. He's not looking to be part of the family again because he doesn't think he deserves it. He's just looking for a way to be near his father and live at home by trying to earn his own keep. But Isaiah 55, 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. 
Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Rose, this son couldn't buy his way back any more than we can purchase a ticket to heaven. Absolutely. And then the next thing you see the father doing in the parable is saying to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So who in the house would have had the best robe? Well, the father's robe would have been the best robe in his house. When we're forgiven by God, we get Jesus's robe of righteousness. We get God's own robe. Absolutely. Remember, this man is filthy from being with pigs. And notice the father doesn't say, son, go in and clean up, throw your robe in the washer and use some Clorox. The son could never have a clean enough robe. We can never clean ourselves up enough to merit salvation. There's a vision showing this robe exchanging thing in Zechariah 3, 4 to 5 regarding Joshua. It says, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. Yeah. And that's obviously a picture of salvation and we don't merit it. So the ring and the sandals are additional signs of his sonship. He's given a signet ring, restoring him to full sonship. He's being welcomed back into the household, not as a servant or some kind of hired worker, but as a son. Now, no one listening to this story would have thought that's what the father should have done and that that was the just thing to do. They would have been thinking that this father was going way too far in showing kindness to this horrible son. They might have disrespected the father as being too lenient or being a softy. Yeah, but grace is unmerited favor. That's the kind of love God the father gives us. We do absolutely nothing to earn it. We say this all the time. We don't get what's coming to us, what we deserve. Jesus has already paid the price for us, no matter how sinful and bad that we've been. You know, there are people in the world who are under so much conviction of sin that they can't believe that God would receive them in light of what they've done. But Jesus says in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He will never turn away a sinner who has repented of his sins and trusted in him. Instead, he will welcome him home. Amen. So let's talk about what coming home looks like. The second point Jesus was driving home in all three of these parables about lost things is that when the lost are found, there's rejoicing. Not only is there rejoicing, but the son gets a party. Isaiah 25, 6 to 9 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The prodigal son doesn't get what he deserves. He definitely did not deserve a party. But this parable is about God 
the love of God, the concern of God for seeking and saving his lost people, and that God will forgive even the most wretched of sinners. And he delights in doing that. So, Rose, let's talk a little bit about this feast. All right. Well, right now, one of the key components to believers is celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper, as a remembrance of what Jesus did for us. It was originally instituted at a Passover meal, if you remember, where the remembrance of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt was part of the feast. So there's a past to the Lord's Supper that we partake in and a present like we do now, but there's also a future. Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper that this was his final drinking of the Passover cup until he drinks it anew in its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Luke 22, 28 to 30 says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. These and other verses hint at a future aspect of communion. Exactly. It's a future reality for us when the kingdom comes in its fullness at the end of the world as we know it now. Revelation 19, 6 through 9 gives us a picture of it too with the marriage supper of the lamb, which is to come, which says, I heard a sound like the roar of a great multitude, like the rushing of many waters and like a mighty rumbling of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the lamb, lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She was given clothing of fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen she wears is the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel told me to write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So let's talk about some takeaways from this parable. The younger son plans what he'll say to his father when he gets home. His speech is all planned out. And when we studied for this, you know, I couldn't help but think to myself, how many of us do this in our relationship with God when we truly don't understand salvation? We may plan our prayer in our heads saying, God, I know I don't deserve your forgiveness, but I'm going to get back on track with you. I promise I'm going to go back to church regularly. Or maybe we think in our heads, I know I backslided, but I can get back in your good graces if I just start serving at church and studying my Bible, etc. But God doesn't and won't accept us on our terms with our offers of working for him or our trying to earn salvation for ourselves. We don't really get the truth of salvation until we finally realize, like we constantly say, that we have absolutely nothing to offer him. Nothing. And that mm -hmm. includes our good works, our promises, whatever. Absolutely. Like you said, we say it all the time. We can't work our way back to God. And we want God on our own terms. We want to say, you know, I was born like this. Therefore, God, you should overlook my sin. We And, you know, we said at the beginning, God is purposeful. That's why we named this dysfunctional family functional God. Functional means purposeful. God is sovereign. He has ordained everything that's happening. He didn't cause you to sin. He didn't have to. But like the younger brother, you made sinful decisions, and now you're stuck where you are. What do you do? Well, like we said, the father in this story is God. He knows all humans have a disdain for him naturally. Romans 10, 11 to 12 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
God does the seeking. And until and unless God regenerates our hearts and turns them from stone to flesh through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're enemies of God. All humans are. That's another main point that Jesus is getting to here. He's telling the judgmental, self-righteous Pharisees that they're just as lost as the son who took his share of the father's stuff and squandered it. Right. And notice that Jesus is missing from the story. The younger man has an elder brother and he needed a good elder brother. Like we talked about last week, he needed an elder brother who would seek him and save him out of his miry pit, but his older brother didn't. And the Pharisees had the same attitude about the sinners. Like we said last in the last episode, both the younger son and us need the perfect elder brother. I want to quote Kevin DeYoung from a 2015 TGC conference here. Jesus wasn't afraid to hang out with sinners, and he wasn't afraid to teach them truth and call them to repentance. Are we afraid to talk about repentance? Jesus wasn't calling sinners to join with him in despising the righteous. No one was. No one in the history of the world has been more inclusive of repentant sinners than Jesus, and no one has been more intolerant of sin. Great quote. Mm-hmm. Sin can get to be a heavy burden. In John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, sin is likened to a heavy backpack. In fact, the whole theme of the book is Christian, the main character, trying to get rid of his heavy backpack. The more we sin, the heavier the backpack gets. Personally, I would say it feels like a dark unsettling inside of us. But no one can out-sin the grace of God. If you find yourself today mired in the muck of the mess you've made of your life, and we've all been there, if there's something inside of the pit of our stomach that just doesn't feel right, if we know that we're not saved and we feel unsettled, today's the day. Absolutely. It might be time for you to come home. God the Father isn't waiting to punish you if you come with repentance, realizing that Jesus already paid the penalty for your sin. Remember, In all three parables, every response when finding a lost thing is rejoicing. It's calling people together and having a party. That's the response of the father when one of his lost ones is found. And if we find ourselves having a self-righteous attitude, being like the older brother, counting on all the things that we've done to quote unquote serve the Lord in any way, shape or form as having a right relationship with God, then we need to repent of that. We do. The good father in the story goes out to the older brother. He desires him to come in and join the party. It's his desire to have the older brother join in that feasting and to rejoice with the rest of them and be glad that his brother is home. Like we learned last week, the older son is just as far away from the father as the younger son was when he was mired in the muck of the pigs. But the older son is so blinded in his own goodness and self-righteousness to even have an understanding of anything to do with unmerited grace. Yeah. And, you know, this parable is the theme of the book Les Miserables. And if you it's a long book to read. It's phenomenal, worth reading. And if you don't want to read the long book, there's so many movies out on this. Oh, yeah. The last one was great. Yeah, with Hugh Jackman as Jean Valjean. But basically, Les Mis is the story of Jean Valjean, who's in prison for stealing bread. I mean, it's a small crime, but he's done something wrong. And then there's Javert, who's the basically the police officer. And he's always lived by the rule of law and has merited grace by you know being righteous his whole life. 
Well, Jean Valjean comes to the realization he's a sinner and falls on the grace of God. And Javert can't let anything slide. There's no grace in him because it's all about keeping the law. Matter of fact, when Jean Valjean shows him grace that's totally undeserved, Javert can't handle it and he kills himself because of it. So yep. it's a great illustration of this parable. Oh, yeah. The only way to merit salvation is to trust in what Jesus did on the cross for you. There is no way you could ever be good enough to merit it yourself. Trust in Jesus' righteousness. The Father has asked you to come. So are you going to? Where do you find yourself? As the lost son who's wallowing in the muck or as the older brother also just as lost, wallowing in your own self-righteousness, wanting justice for everyone else? Wherever you are, come. We'll end with these words from J.C. Ryle. A free pardon awaits you. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let the person who is ashamed to repent consider these verses and cast shame aside. What though the world mocks and jests at your repentance? While man is mocking, angels are rejoicing. The very change which sinners call foolishness is a change which fills heaven with joy. Have you repented? That is, after all, the spiritual question which concerns us. What shall it profit us to know God's love if we do not use it? If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And that's where we need to end today. We are only eight days from the release of the Bible Blueprint, a guide to better understanding the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And this week, look for posts about our launch party that's going to happen on August 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We invite you to join us. We're going to have giveaways and a lot of other cool stuff. Have a blessed day, everybody. 